Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on this very special simulcast edition of Zoom into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast. If you're listening to our podcast, you could be at Spotify, Apple, iTunes, anywhere you download podcasts. We're now at iHeartMedia as well. And you can subscribe to new episodes every Tuesday. So be sure to tell a friend and join us for our Big Time Talker podcast. Zoom into Books presented by our friends at Headline Books. And uh, they are one of those incredible publishers that bring terrific stories to light. The Big Time Talker podcast and Zoom into Books brought to you today by SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you are a meeting planner or maybe you're a platform speaker, well, the thing to do is to find one another at SpeakerMatch.com. And speaking events are back in the post-COVID days. So utilize SpeakerMatch.com and let's all get back together once again. Bill Rasmussen is not only the founder of ESPN, the world's very first 24-hour, seven-day-a-week sports television network. He is, and I, I may make him blush a little, a legend in entrepreneurial sports, in advertising and broadcasting, recognized by the Sports Business Journal as one of the 100 people who greatly influenced the NFL. Sports Illustrated honored him as one of their 40 for the ages. USA Today calls him the father of cable sports, and he's the author of the brand new book, ESPN, One Giant Leap for Fan Time. Bill, how's that for an introduction? Wow. I, I'm It's a good thing that this is in living color up here because you're... <laughs> no, I really appreciate that, Burke. Thank you very much. It was... Uh, some of those things that you mentioned as you were going through them, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking back. It's been, it's been an interesting road to, tr to tread, so to speak. When you look back on, on your life, Bill, I mean, you're a kid, you know, born very humbly, South Side of Chicago kid, um, went on to be in the Air Force, but then things really gradually began to take off for you. I want to peel back the onion to your childhood in the South Side of Chicago. What, what are your earliest memories growing up there that, that may or may not be sports related? What do you remember about being a kid there? Well, I was born in 1932, which was kind of a bad time in the country, as everyone knows, that following the crash in 29 and then the sure. Great Depression. And I remember that my father, I, when uh, first memories I have, my parents were living with my father's mother in, uh, in well, still on South Side Chicago, just a little closer to the downtown. Um, and then I remember a conversation. I, I, I had to be, I don't know, five or six years old. And my father was telling me that he and his brother, my father was the youngest of 11 children. And the next line above him was his uh, brother, Elmer. And they said, they're going to build a house so we could move out to the suburbs. Okay. All the way out. To, that meant out where the prairies were. I mean, literally, they were literally... The streets were just uh, little trails, and uh, there was one U.S. highway. It was nine. It was 95th Street to us, but I think it's U.S. 1220 or something. And it was a two-lane highway. Today, it's a it's a super. I think it's four lanes in each direction now, or something. It, 
Uh, How tough the- was it, Bill, as a, a kid in the Great Depression? You mentioned that you were living uh, with your grandparents, so yeah. things must have been pretty tight. Yeah, they were, and they stayed that way uh, actually through thirty. You know, through the late thirties, uh, my father had to take care of three different jobs. Mm. The third job being taking care of his family, but he um, he worked as a milkman before he went to work on the streetcar system. Uh, he would be out delivering milk up until six o'clock, then get down to whatever he was going to. Um, whatever his assignment was that day for the, today is the CTA, the, the rail system in Chicago. The one thing he told us, and this one st- sticks in my mind to this day, we will get through, and he, I can remember when he was shaking his finger, he said, we'll get through this and I'll put food on the table, but I don't want to see any plate with any food on it when we're finished with dinner. So it was almost like a threat, you know, you better, <laughs> I'll feed you, I'll put the food there. You better eat it all though. Cause we didn't, yeah, it was an, inter- it was an interesting time. And then when um, the um, Pearl Harbor occurred, of course, we just celebrated that every December since 1941. Sure. And uh, the thing that I remember is all of, you know, my father would have been probably well, he would have been 30, 30 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood. On when Pearl Harbor happened, everybody, his friends, they all rushed down. Everybody was going to go in the army or enlist. Enlist, yeah. It was it was incredible, and the, the number of people that turned out. And of course, we all know how that went. Uh, you were nine years old when Pearl Harbor happened. Do you have a yeah. a clear recollection of where oh, you were when you got the news? Yep, I was sitting cross-legged. We heard my father call us in, said something's happening. We sat in front of the radio. That sounds odd today. You sit in front of a TV screen or something. The radio that in those days was literally a piece of furniture. I mean, it was uh, you know probably four feet high and a regular piece of cabinetry finishing it. And they had these big, big tubes. I don't know what you call them. Yeah, but we we was there was no TV. We didn't have TV at that point. I mean, not just us. Nobody had TV. Nobody had TV. This was pre-TV. Yeah, pre-TV. So uh, I can remember the and I just you know you see it every year. This day of that will live in infamy. President Roosevelt saying that, and I actually heard him say those words live. Bill Rasmussen is our guest today. His brand new book from Headline Books is ESPN One Giant Leap for Fankind. Walk through sports history with a man who changed it. Bill is uh, widely known as the founder of ESPN, 24 hours, seven days a week, sports television, which uh, we'll talk to Bill a little bit about later. I understand he was told that would never work. Um, So you grew up in the South Side of Chicago in the middle of the Great Depression, you go to college and get a degree in economics. And I wonder, mm-hmm. as you look back on it now in the rearview mirror, is there is there a correlation there? Did you take economics in school because young Bill said, I, I don't ever want to be poor again? Well, it, it's really interesting that you asked that. In 1948, uh, I, I graduated in 1950. But in 1948, there was a uh, contest, I guess you would call it, by the Chicago Sun-Times 
an essay contest. Tell us what it was for all the high schools in Chicago. And we had right. at that point we had 36 high schools in Chicago because we had four sports divisions and each had nine teams. Um, anyway, I said, you know, that's pretty interesting. And I was, all of the teachers at school say, how who can we get who can we get tired of this? Well, several people wrote essays and so on, but I had to pick an essay. What 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 would the topic be? So I was talking to my father about it, and he said, Well, why don't you write? Why don't you become a lawyer? You know, you can go to law school and so on. And if it doesn't work, well, that's okay. There are other ways to do things. So I wrote this essay on becoming a lawyer. And I was one of six kids in Chicago selected to attend Harry Truman's inauguration in Washington, D.C. on January 20th, 1949. That was the famous year that the headline that was held up on the Chicago Tribune, Dewey Beats Truman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't the case. So off we went to Washington. We uh, we got on the train, that, you know, in the Chicago Sun Times. We were all over the Chicago Sun Times. I had no idea what all that meant, but off we went. So that kind of gave me a little flavor. We get on the train. First people we met were uh, Forrest Tucker. Now, there's a name that you probably have never heard of. He was a big Western star in the day. Oh, yeah. And Phil Harris and Alice Faye were a big couple. He was a band leader. And, oh, we had we just had a great time. And then when we got to Washington, we met there. The Sun-Times had us everywhere. And we had a photographer with us in this. So I think my dreams of being a lawyer were dashed along in there. I thought, this is pretty, this is pretty cool. We're meeting a lot of people. I wonder how that works. Sure. But I, I had an interest in baseball and sports in general, but baseball in particular prior to that. And uh, I, I don't know, just one of those things that changed from being a lawyer. A lawyer won the contest, got me a trip to Washington, but never looked back and never really thought about going to law school. Bill, you were um, a veteran as well. You served in the Air Force. Uh, tell me a little bit about your time in the service because you came in after World War II. Were you there during the Korean conflict? Yes. As a matter of fact, <laughs> the day we graduated was the day the North Koreans invaded the South. Oh, man. So we, um, there had been rumblings and everybody had to register for the draft because of World War II. And that started everybody, when you turned 18, you registered. And so we were all registered for the draft <laughs> and uh, really kind of interesting. Uh, we graduated. Some of us had been invited to play for a minor league baseball team in Iowa. I don't know. It must have been a class triple D or some such thing. Because <laughs> we weren't that good. But anyway, it was fun to be invited. But the day we graduated and the war and the North Koreans started, uh, it became apparent that if you didn't have a college deferment, you were going to go to Korea. You were going to go, you were going on active duty instantly. That was the plan. You had no choice. Here's where, what's going to happen to you. This, that's right. This is it. And I remember our first baseman said, I'm going to play ball anyway. We had all said, we're going to college. Fine. That was June 25th. He was drafted within days, literally. Oh. See ya. He had no, no deferment. He was to Japan and he, I mean, to, to Korea and back by the end of the summer. I couldn't believe, nobody could believe he 
apparently there was not very much training when they were trained, I guess, talked to or spoken with or sat in meetings on the ship on the way over. But anyway, that's he, it. Got, he, he was wounded in our final game in that summer season before we all went off to college. Those are with deferments. Played at the Lions, I think it was the Lions, U.S. Uh, Veterans Hospital in, in Chicago, in the suburbs of Chicago. And our first baseman of June was sitting in a wheelchair suffering from the wounds that he had incurred in Japan. That was tough. That's got to be, yeah, a, a really difficult because you're a young guy at this point. You're barely a man. Oh, yeah. And, and the guys around you. Yeah, the guys around you, not only are you seeing people of, of your father's generation who come back after World War II, but now it's your peers and they're yeah. coming back. What is that, that, uh, what goes through your mind when you see that? Oh, that, that was devastating. You know, we just, we couldn't believe it. We, and, and we, he, he survived, recovered, and I saw him. I went back for, I think it was like the 47th anniversary of our graduation or something in 1997, or I don't know, somewhere there. And uh, and he did fine, but uh, he he still thought he should have gone to college instead of Korea, looking back on it. But it was, you know, we were all 17, 18, 19-year-old kids. It really, it really struck home. Bill Rasmussen is our guest today. He's written a new book called ESPN, One Giant Leap for Fankind. He's the founder of ESPN. He's done a lot of other really interesting things in his life. Um so you get this degree in uh, economics, then you get your MBA from Rutgers, and and then you do something that that I'm sure your father must have given you the side eye on. You got this economics degree, you have an MBA, and you say, you know, I think I'm going to get into the sports broadcasting business. Yeah, well, did he think you were nuts? Yeah, did your parents want to have your head examined. Yeah, basically, basically that was the case. But he was he was a supporter everywhere when I played and so on. But he had some different rules than we hear of today. For example, uh, he would say to my two brothers and my sister on occasion, "We're going to the ball game today, whether they wanted to or not. They were going to the ball game." <laughs> and, and then they uh, one day I must have had a pretty good day, and we stopped. There was a little uh, soft ice cream stand, I guess you would call it, on the way. Yeah home going back to where we live on the south side and it struck we stopped one day and we all had the ice cream it was great and so on and the next week we were uh, getting ready to go in and he came he came up with an idea he said if bill doesn't get a hit today we're not stopping for ice cream oh man talk about pressure's on the pressure was really on the very first day he said that i I did an offer i didn't get any hits my two brothers and sister wanted to throttle me i think no soft serve for you people no soft ice cream today and the intriguing thing is my father could have driven a route that we wouldn't have seen that we could have go you know different different highway going back home but he drove right past it oh yeah everybody's groaning you know oh oh. rubbed it in nope no hits no ice cream wow pressure was on the rest of the season that's tough that's tough so so when you uh, you get your first uh, broadcasting job, uh, TV has come along, I guess, by that point, early TV. But your first job was radio play-by-play announcer. Is that right? Yep. I, yeah. What I, station? I, In what town? 
WTTT AM in Amherst, Massachusetts. Starting right at the top there, WTTT in Amherst. Oh, yeah. Well, it was a, oh, and it was a daytimer. Remember when we had those daytimer radio stations? Oh, yeah. Sign off after dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sign off. There's some formal way they read the tea leaves and you have to be off at 413 on this day. And, you know, as it gets deeper into the winter, you're only on the air. It seems like 10 minutes a day, but it was actually when... But it makes it a little I, tough to do play-by-play for Friday Night Lights when uh, when the station is off the air. Yeah, you can't do that. Actually, I did basketball for the station in neighboring Northampton because they were a full-time station. And uh, the, the two station managers worked together. Obviously, if you're daytime, you can't do basketball anyway. So right. we're playing at night. But um, it was interesting. I never had any formal training, and I... Big admission here, but I think I do mention, I, I know I mentioned it in the book. Um, I made this decision up here in my mind. I was going to go do this. Hadn't told too many people about it. But I was subscribing at that time. There was Broadcasting Magazine. Remember that? Oh, sure. I, that goes way back. And they'd have these little two-line position available, such and such, you know, or jobs section or whatever. You know, so classified. Yes. Yeah, so I saw this little, this little two-liner and said, Westerly, Rhode Island Station, whatever it was, looking for a, a sportscaster. That's what they said, not play-by-play, sportscaster. So I said, okay, now I'm living in Clifton, New Jersey, and this is Westerly, Rhode Island. And I said to my wife at breakfast, I'm going to ride, drive up there and, and uh, interview for this job. When I went in to talk to the guy, you know, come on in, Bill, everybody. He said, did you bring your tape? I said, nope. What do you mean you didn't bring your tape? I said, I don't have a tape. He said, well, what station do you work for? I said, oh, I've never worked in radio. And you're applying, you, you think you can do play-by-play for my new station? I said, I sure can. He said, he kind of shook his head and he said, you know, this is the strangest interview I've ever had for, for a broadcasting <laughs> job. You haven't got any, you haven't done any broadcasting. He said, I'll tell you what, we're just putting the station on the air. If you'll go up there a couple of months early and help us through all the FCC things and hoops to jump through, uh, you'll be my sports guest. 7.45 in the morning and whatever it was the last four minutes or five minutes before we signed off and, and uh, at the end of the day. So when I got up there, uh, most interesting thing probably is when I said to my wife that night, uh, we're going to move to Amherst, Massachusetts. She said, we're going to what? At that point, we had uh, two young boys uh, and, and a brand new baby girl. This is so, a tough sell, isn't it? This This was not the ideal topic for discussion over the dinner table, but uh, we got through it. We got up there. It turned out she loved it just as much as we did. It was really great. Uh, so we went on the air April 1st, 1963, my first paid for. I think maybe I was making $65 a week or something at that point. Oh, my. <laughs> but that's okay. We got through it. And, uh, we were talking with the station manager, the owner, and he said, anything else we can do? And I said, yeah, well, let's let's talk about football. University of Massachusetts is right here. UMass was a member of the Yankee Conference and the six New England states 
were they were not a football powerhouse conference. It was not the SEC, believe me, or right. the Big Ten or Twelve. So I went up and introduced myself. The athletic director, you know, call for an appointment. Nice, nice guy. I played in the Sugar Bowl in 1939. I saw that on his desk, and uh, he said, "What do you want to do? Why, why are we, why are we getting together?" He said, "I'm happy to meet you, but I don't understand." I said, "Well, we want to broadcast your games." He said, "You do? Why? <laughs> why?" <laughs> yeah. he, he actually said the words why nobody will listen he said you know that's just who are we i mean that's the way they this is hard to believe when in this day and age of you know how much things have it, changed yeah but anyway he said okay i said anything else i said uh well I'm thinking to myself, what else? How about basketball? I've forgotten for the moment that we don't, we're not in the area. It's so, oh, a little sure. difficult to carry, but you you know, if you can we'll, sell it, you we'll, can sell it. We'll figure, we'll figure something out. So he said, sure, go ahead. That was it. Whole negotiation. No, nothing signed. We just started doing it. He assigned the sports information director to be my color man because I didn't think about that when we went in. I don't, we didn't have any color man. There wasn't anybody going to travel with us. Sure. So our first game was in Orono, Maine in September of 1963. We're driving to Maine and I'm saying to myself, I wonder if I should sell, should tell Dick Page, the SID, who's going to be my color man. I wonder if I should tell him I've never broadcast a football game before. So or at this point, the guy, the guy who's riding shotgun with you has no idea that you have no idea what no, you're doing. No, no, I'm, I'm the radio guy. As far as he's oh, concerned, I'm the, radio, I'm the radio guy. I must know everything about it. But I also didn't tell him I'd never even seen a college football game up to that point. So we're, wow. we're riding from Amherst to Orono, Maine. And uh, along the way, I slowly getting closer to game time and getting closer to getting up there. I finally tell him all of these things and he is stunned. I said, well, we'll work it together and we'll just talk about the football game. And it worked out fine. People back in Massachusetts were, wow, really excited. And uh, that's the way it started. That was the first broadcast I ever did, play-by-play, Massachusetts at Maine. Bill Rasmussen, the founder of ESPN, walking back through his uh, life and his connection with sports history, guy who changed it all. The new book is ESPN, One Giant Leap for Fankind. It's available now from uh, Headline Books, and what a uh, what a great gift to give during the holiday season. Um so that's a, that's a pretty humble beginning. I have heard tape from the 60s and, and before that, the 30s and 40s and 50s of play-by-play. Um, what I haven't heard from back then is sports talk. Was that even a thing? Was there sports talk? Did that exist? No, no not at all. As a matter of fact, that was one of the side benefits of the satellite that uh, RCA launched in 1975. Uh, I, I don't. I'm not an engineer, so I don't know how to describe it. But as I understand it, if you were looking at it as if it was a, a 33 and a third record, TV is in certain bands, and on the outer edges, there you can do some radio, some some audio, because there there are more than just one. I guess you'd say channel for just TV and so on on the satellite. That's you can do a lot of things. Right. So, uh, as a matter of fact, my son Scott started something 
1980 called Enterprise Radio and hired some uh, sports talk guys from Philadelphia, New York, and so on, and uh, launched it. It was going to be a what you're doing right now sports podcast. Talk. Yeah, yeah. It, it wouldn't. It wasn't going to be a podcast. We hadn't even heard the word podcast until you know last week, I guess. But. <laughs> <laughs> No, but a talk show that talk about sports, yeah. Yeah, just to talk about sports, and they got some some guys really interested. It was going well, but unfortunately, that met the fate that we thought that everybody else told us ESPN was going to meet. Who's going to listen to some guy sitting in a microphone talking about sports for three or four hours a day? That just is the silliest idea, you know. And it, so, that company actually survived for about a year and a half, but it was. There were no no advertising sales. Nobody believed in it at that time. And now today there must be 50,000 sports guys doing things. When you, um, you're right. And, and it's amazing. And I'm sure having the, you know, the front row seat on this to watch it all explode must be mind blowing for you. When you did that first football game in Amherst in 63, was this a revenue generating idea? Is that how you sold it to your boss? Hey, if I broadcast this football game, we can make some advertising dollars there. Was that the sell for you to get to do that it? That was the sell, but they didn't sell any. So that that didn't work early on. So he suggested that maybe I was not the right guy after all. Why didn't I do the network on my own on the weekends? Well, it turned out that coming, I was worked in the advertising department at uh, Westinghouse and the vice president and I got to know each other and he said uh, yeah well we'll we'll see what hmm. who knows anyway it turns out he's working for S&H Green Stamps I don't know if everybody remembers that that was a coupon you know stick them in the stickers yeah you take the booklet in and you get your Christmas gifts yeah exactly so he said he said, I guess we can, I guess we can advertise. I mean, we have to advertise. So since he and I were friends, he carved out a little bit of a getting by budget, you know, not very much money. And then I discovered I had a neighbor. I mean, we had, I had no idea. He worked for some company, some beer company in New York. I don't know. And he said, oh yeah, Peel's beer. He said, Bert and Harry were two animated characters and Peel's beer was it? He said, sure, whatever. So now I had a beer sponsor. I don't know if I was legal in those days, but we had a beer sponsor in 1964. And we had SH Green Stamp, and then we sold some local advertising right in and around Emerson, the shoe store, one of the shoe stores in town, uh, one of the contractors who worked at building things on the university campus. And you just kept asking, you know, keep asking questions. As a matter of fact, when I speak at colleges, especially with uh, colleges and universities, I tell the kids, you know, you can just keep asking questions until somebody says yes. All the no's in the world don't make any difference. You might have a thousand no's or a hundred no's or 10 no's. You only need one yes to be moving on down the road. So uh, I, I kind of followed that. I just kept talking to people about advertising all the way up through Getty Oil all the moment. So, Bill Rasmussen, the founder of ESPN, is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast and Zoom into Books. The brand new book is available. 
It's one giant leap for fankind. I've got a copy of it right here in my hot little hands, signed by Bill. And you can get it online now at uh, Amazon.com or ask for it at, at bookstores. Um, I, I want to ask Bill about you from a psychological standpoint, because you talked about you're told no over and over again. Mm-hmm. But at some point, Something fires off in the synapses of your brain, and you say to yourself, self, I've been a radio announcer in sports. I've been a, a TV announcer, play-by-play guy. I've done some baseball. I've done some football. I've done some basketball. I've done some hockey. But I think there's an opportunity to do a TV network that does sports around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you start to to sell this, uh, try to sell this idea to people, and pretty much universally, they're told you're out of your mind, Bill. This is yes. never going to work, Bill. Was there a time psychologically where you thought, you know, maybe they're right, maybe there's no shot at this, maybe this there this is not going to work? Well, I guess uh, the closest I would I can say I came to that was when Getty Oil who had finally said they would talk to us, uh, said, we're going to go ahead with this, provided the people who brought them, the financial group that brought us to Getty Oil, would do this, this, and this, and they would forego forego all the expenses. Getty was a hard hard bargain to drive. They they were something else. Uh, And I remember the fellow's name was J.B. Doherty, the uh, investment representative that was working with us by that time. Okay. And he and I were walking. We were in Los Angeles, had met with Getty, went out and had dinner, and it must have been probably 11 o'clock at night by the time. He looked at me, and I looked at him, and he said, I don't know if they're going to do this. And if they don't do it, we're done. Meaning his advisory position, taking sure. all these people. And I said, he's going to do it. He said, how do you know that? I said, he's just going to do it. So he said, okay. Next morning, he said, this is like, by that time we've had this and we're walking at midnight. I don't know what time it was. Next morning, we had a call and Getty did it. He said, how'd you know that? I said, because the guy we were talking to, his, it was evident he had an ego. And he said, 24-hour sports. He was a sports fan. And he really liked the Hollywood atmosphere and what happened out in los angeles he told the showbiz us about all. Yeah. showbiz yeah he told us about john forsyth and he were such buddies that you know the uh, all of all of the actors so jb said to me well i guess you were right we're going to do it and then came the hammer about how many what what kind of percentage they wanted the company to do it which was ridiculous but that's okay but he said the next morning he said we'll give you 20 million dollars to start and here's what we wanted. Let's go. That was a pretty good moment to hear. Somebody says back then, you know, twenty million dollars today might not start a network. Where back then it helped. As a matter of fact, that's a question I get all the time. How did you finance this thing? And I took a, a credit card, cash advance for the incidentals. You know, just getting started. And it's easy to say. And and this always, I I just hope somebody asks me that every time I go and I say. That was the easiest thing of all. Took a, 
$9,000 credit card cash advance, $40 million from Getty Oil, voila, instant network. And when you think about it that way, because Getty said, how many, uh, how many trucks do you need? How many remote trucks? Well, I don't know, how's seven sound? I mean, it, it was like, you know, it was like how many, ham do you want two hamburgers or whatever? And, it, it, but never, I can honestly say, I mean, I was tired. I'd get frustrated, but I just knew it was going to work. And uh, the reaction from the cable industry was ridiculous. I don't know. Today, the fees are outrageous if you're still paying for basic cable. But back then, Ted Turner had already put his uh, WTBS in Atlanta on the on a common carrier um, so that if he repeated his broadcasting and he created the superstation, but he couldn't make any change. It had to be whatever was delivered out of Atlanta, and that was fine. Um, but there were no other, nobody else was doing anything. And he was charging 10 cents a month per subscriber. So I said, well, 10 cents, that's probably not going to do it. We're going to have to have a penny a day. We're going to be 30 cents a month. When I talked to the cable industry, they just you can leave right now. There's no way anybody's ever going to pay for an all sports network a penny a day. Sure. When they when they passed the hundred millionth subscriber, and their prices were at eight and nine dollars per month, I thought <laughs> that nobody's going to nobody's going to buy it. But the the one example that I always use and talk about when I'm speaking anywhere is I went. To Denver, Colorado, there were four or five or six corporate headquarters for the big cable systems of the right. day. And I walked into one, and there was a man, a young man, and a young woman who were going to attend the meeting. Gene O'Grady and Tom Johnson. I'll never forget their names. Okay. And they they laughed. They they laughed when I walked in. They really laughed. They said, "We weren't sure you were going to come, but because you know this is never going to work." And they said, how, how do you think anybody, first of all, you're not going to find enough sports to play. Hardly. Of course not. Not a way. And who's going to listen to sports at two in the morning? Nobody's going to be awake listening to your things. And during the day, are you kidding me? Nobody's going to beat ABC and whatever show they had and NBC. And I said, well, we think we can. And they laughed again. Many years later, I crossed paths with them. Right. And we all laughed then. <laughs> shows you how smart we were. We thought we were the really smart people in the business. But and now today, by the way, on that bowl games thing, you can look on the ES, ESPN schedule for this current bowl season. Right. ESPN is doing 43 bowl games. They invent bowl games just so ESPN can do them. And ESPN underwrites many of them. And owns the game themselves but it's uh, it worked that's all i can say it worked and bill rasmussen is our guest today the book is espn one giant leap for fankind a walk through sports history with the man who changed it is the founder of espn when you look back on on the growth of this thing and i'm sure you've been asked this a million times um for those of us that uh, haven't been around uh, the sun as many times as you have ESPN now is one of the great brands in sports. 
uh, and, and in life overall, not just sports, in, in life. You, everyone knows ESPN globally. Could you have ever in your mind, Bill, visualizing where this thing has gone? No, I thought it would be big in the U.S., but I hadn't going international and around the globe never even occurred to me. But it should have. Uh, and fortunately, they had a lot of smart engineering type technical people who knew what they could do. And they did a uh, America's Cup race from Australia, one of the early years. And that that kind of opened the eyes for everybody. And, and we could do some things around anywhere, really, that the satellite. So if, it, if, if one satellite didn't cover, you could always do as they did the... Uh, an America's Cup race from Australia, uh, a, a double hop from one satellite to the other. And I know the word double hop. I have no idea how you do that. I mean, I could barely turn on a light switch. But <laughs> those guys know. That's what engineers are for. That's exactly. It, as a matter of fact, just, just to illustrate that, because nobody could believe this was that fast. And we showed them, we put two TV sets in the... In, building that we had and when everybody came in they said how does this work when we take them in and say you know it's going to go 22,300 miles there's a video I, I have on the website espnfounder.com that illustrates it and we put these two uh, tv sets next to each other one was the outgoing signal one the incoming and it's like uh, it wasn't even like the 20 second delay or seven second delay is like a fifth of a second it's out and back or two fifths of a second. just and it's amazing and i as i say to everybody i still don't have any idea how pictures fly through the air much less in color but they do how important or can you even overstate the importance of football and, and monday night football to espn and and of the american experience i mean is that uh, to use a sports uh, cliche, it was that a game changer that brought just a ton of eyeballs to the network? Oh, yeah. First, it was Monday Night Football. When that, you know, when it first started, we had uh, Dandy Don Meredith and Frank Gifford and Howard Cosell. I mean, a whole bunch of different people. Um, and when I, in 1979, in the summer of 79, I met with Pete Rozelle, the commissioner. Of the NFL at the time, because I, you know, I was by then I was really revved up. We were going to do this 24-hour. Of course, the NFL is going to be in there. They're going to leap at it. Right. Well, Pete was a really real gentleman, and he didn't exactly leap at it either. And I remember when we finished, he was very respectful, listened to everything, and then he, I remember him saying, "Not today, Bill, but someday." And in 2005, I think the someday arrived in 2006. They started, the contract arrived in 2006, they began playing. Monday Night Football was obviously a huge win. But before that, they had been doing a lot of college baseball and football and everything else. So it wasn't a surprise to anyone, I don't think. When you started, though, I mean, you were having a tough time. You, there was a whole lot of, of uh, you know, the sports that maybe did not uh, garner uh, huge uh, ratings and, and huge viewership, but you had to take what you could get in the beginning. Oh, yeah. Didn't we ever? We we even had a request for rights fee. What would we pay for New York rooftop platform tennis? 
I don't even know what that is. Uh, we turned that one down. Another guy came in and donated. He said, I'm going to give you a bunch of pool tables if you'll just tell them guys playing pool. And then we'll take it to Las Vegas. And um, you, I can't even imagine the number of crazy, crazy things that were people would think of. But uh, it, all, it all worked out. When you look back on your time with ESPN and, and becoming sort of the spokesperson emeritus as, as the first big cheese and big kahuna there, is there one memory that sticks out more than the others? Because you want to talk about a guy who is the epitome of a life well lived, who's had fun doing what he wants to do for his whole life. It's probably you, Bill. So it may be tough, but is there one sort of peak pinnacle moment for you in this whole thing? I guess if... Uh... I really think about it. It was September 7th, 1979 at about 6.50. We were going on the air at seven o'clock and we had for months, we had been telling everybody we're going to be on the air September 7th, 1979 at seven o'clock. We just figured we'd put a peg in the ground and that'd make everybody work for it. When we first hired Chet Simmons, he came to work July 31st, 1979. And the first thing he said was, well, we're canceling this getting on the air at seven o'clock on September 7th because we're not going to do it. And I said, yes, we are. We have to do it because we we had advertised the magazines and everything. And so when we came up to that moment at September 7th, seven o'clock, and Lee Leonard was there and he was the first guy seen. And those first words, that was the pinnacle. If you're a fan, if you're a fan, what you'll see in the next minutes, hours, and days to follow may convince you you've gone to sports heaven. Beyond that blue horizon is the limitless world of sports. And right now, you're standing on the edge of tomorrow. Sports, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, from ESPN, the Total Sports Cable Network. That was a thrilling moment. As you can see, it's stuck. It's still in my brain. I bet, I bet a little tear dribbled down your eye then. That's yeah. got to be a culmination of a, a, a dream. It was. It was indeed. And George Grand was on that first show along with Lee Leonard. And at the celebration of, I think it was either the 100,000th broadcast or the 50,000th, whatever it was, we all went back to Bristol. And, and George, I, he had not, we had talked about this and we would talk through the years. But that night when he was back and they we recreated on the uh, anniversary, that very first sportscast, Sports Center. And he said, I can remember sitting in the studio looking through and seeing everybody in the control room. He said, How did you guys feel? There was there there was no feeling. We were just so pleased. Everybody's so happy. Nobody cheered, nobody jumped up and down or anything of the kind. We all had our own thoughts, and uh, that was a pretty special night. That was a very special time. Flipping the switch and get ready, world, here we come. It was, that was a kind of a moment. Boy, howdy, did you come. The book is ESPN, One Giant Leap for Fankind to Walk Through Sports History with the Man Who Changed It, Bill Rasmussen, the founder of ESPN. Thank you so much for being here today. We can do this again. I hope we do. You know, you and I, we could start talking about, we could do it by seasons, by decades, by you, you pick the sport. We can do 
you get a couple of radio guys talking, we could probably do a 24-hour thing. Hey, <laughs> there's an that. idea there somewhere. A 24-hour sports network. Ah, that'll never work. No, it's not going to work. Kirk, <laughs> <laughs> a delight to be with you today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. My pleasure. What a fantastic conversation. Pick the book up now. ESPN, One Giant Leap for Fankind. Bill Rasmussen, the founder of ESPN, our guest today. Thank you, Headline Books. For the Zoom into Books platform, thank you to everyone listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. Wherever you are, wherever you go today, make it a great day. Thanks for being here. Bye, everybody.